Welcome to the Unsweetened Sayo podcast. My name is Siobhan Harris. I am a certified integrative nutrition health coach and the founder of unsweetenedsayo.com. I gave up all sugar and all flour on January 13th, 2018, and am finally free of my addiction. My mission is to help other sugar addicts find their path to freedom and live the sweet life without sugar. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 117 of Unsweetened Sayo, the podcast. I'm really excited today to have Danny with us. Danielle Hamilton is a functional nutritional therapy practitioner and restorative wellness practitioner who specializes in blood sugar regulation and digestion. She became interested in blood blood sugar issues when she learned that insulin resistance was at the root cause of her PCOS. She was able to reverse her PCOS, cystic acne, PMS, and weight loss resistance by reversing insulin resistance. Her mission is to help others uncover their blood sugar and insulin issues, as most people don't know the early signs, as well as help them optimize digestion for low-carb diets. Danny promotes a holistic approach to reversing insulin resistance, which goes beyond just changing macros. She is the host of the Unlock the Sugar Shackles podcast and the creator of the Blood Sugar Sugar Mastery Program. Welcome, Danny. So excited to have you here with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. It's an honor. I love the all the education and um you know, information that you're giving about um, blood sugar and insulin resistance. I think this is such an important topic for many, many people. Um, So I can't wait to dig into that a little bit later, but let's first start with kind of sharing your own, you alluded it to a little bit in your, the intro, but tell us a little bit about your own health journey and, and how this became such an important topic for you. Yeah, sure. So my story starts in childhood, just like most of ours, where I was one of those kids who pretty much only ate refined carbohydrates. So if it was packaged, you know, breakfast cereals, egg waffles, anything with syrup on it, I was your girl. That's what I lived on. I was super picky and everyone would accommodate that. And that's what I ate. And I thought there was nothing wrong with that. And as a kid, I was just a little bit sickly. Um, you know, I had a little bit of eczema when I was young, I would get a lot of ear infections, a lot of strep throat, a lot of colds. Uh, I took a ton of antibiotics. I used to beg my mom for the pink stuff, which was the amoxicillin, which I'm sure had sugar in it. And, um, and then as I got older, I started to struggle with things in my teens, like um, I had acne. And then as I got a little bit older, I was a senior in high school. I had to get my tonsils out because I kept getting strep throat. Then the next year I went to college, gained a bunch of weight because of course I was eating and drinking like garbage. And I developed really bad seasonal allergies. And then I moved to Miami and my allergies, my, the season for allergies was now all year round. And so I had seasonal allergies all the time. I had asthma. I had to be on multiple um, injections for the, to kind of lower my immune system's response to all these allergens, because I was on multiple prescription medications to um, Zyrtec and Singular and uh, two different inhalers. So I was a mess and this was my early twenties. And I was working as a speech pathologist in a nursing home in a skilled nursing facility at the time. And all of my clients had um, my patients, sorry, uh, (laughs) different, um, professions. So all of my patients at the time had so many diagnoses, so many prescriptions, but they were in their seventies, eighties, and nineties. And I was only in my twenties and I had a ton of stuff going on. And I just started to look and be like, I started to freak out, honestly. And I was like, what the heck is going to happen to me? I'm going to be just like this, you know, not able to go to the bathroom on my own, all these tubes, all these medications, all these procedures can't move around. What quality of life is this? And I just had this panic. (laughs) And so somehow I found this book by Rob Wolf called the paleo diet solution. And it talked all about real food and how everything that we had been, that we had been taught was like, basically do the opposite of everything we've been taught. It says, don't have a lot of salt. Actually too little salt can cause insulin resistance. So actually have salt. Um, you know, it says eat really low fat 
well, fat stabilizes your hormones and stabilizes your blood sugar and is a necessary macronutrient, have the fat, you know, so everything we've been taught was just wrong. And so I got rid of all the processed food in my diet and I switched everything over to real food. I was eating meats and eggs and fish and vegetables and fruits and nuts and seeds. And I, my health just almost effortlessly transformed. I got off all of my medications, I never had any more strep throat. I never, um, my immune system got better. I, it was just amazing. It was amazing what happened. And so then I was eating this paleo type diet, this real food diet, but I still had what I didn't realize at the time was I, I just called it a sweet tooth. Like everyone has a sweet tooth. Oh, I have a sweet tooth. Um, I used to say all my teeth were sweet because I liked sweets that much. And so because I wasn't eating things like breakfast cereals and ice cream, I was eating things more like, um, I was having a lot of sweet potatoes, a lot of bananas, a lot of smoothies, acai bowls, plantains, plantain chips, store-bought kombucha, fresh juices. I was still heavily, heavily gravitating towards carbs and sugar, but I thought that, oh, and also like honey and maple syrup and coconut sugar. And I was like, well, this is healthy sugar. So this is fine. And so I just kind of dismissed it because I didn't hear otherwise. I'm like, oh, this is healthy. So I can just have this. It's no problem. But what I didn't realize is that my sweet tooth and sugar addiction sort of just transformed into the diet that I was on. And I started gaining a ton of weight. And so I started gaining weight. My acne from my teenage years came back way worse. It was cyclic. It was cystic. It was, um, then it stopped being cyclical with my cycles and started becoming all the time. I started having, I started losing my period. I had like adrenal fatigue. I had no energy and it was like, what the heck happened? Because this diet was just making me so healthy. And now all of a sudden I just turned this corner, something, something is not right. And I was diagnosed with PCOS, which, um, for those who don't know, it's polycystic ovarian syndrome. It's just a collection of symptoms. And basically it indicates that there's a hormonal balance imbalance, usually, um, higher, male sex hormones. So the androgens like testosterone and DHEA. And so that's why I didn't have a cycle. That's why my, you know, I was having all these, um, this acne and stuff, but I saw that the recommendations for PCOS were don't eat refined sugar, don't eat gluten or dairy. And I was like, I'm doing all those things. So I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing and just paleo harder. And because I didn't change anything, nothing changed. And so it wasn't until I heard a podcast where someone said that, um, PCOS is the diabetes of the ovaries. And I just almost drove my car off the road because I was like, what are you talking about diabetes? I doesn't that have to do with blood sugar, something about sugar. I had no idea. I didn't know what blood sugar was in all of the studying that I had done and like researching and listening to podcasts and reading books. I actually skipped over chapters on blood sugar because I said, I don't have diabetes. This doesn't apply to me. So I just skipped over it. And it's, I am like kind of kicking myself because I could have realized a little bit sooner, but what I didn't realize was that I had all these symptoms of blood sugar issues and they, no one talks about this. If I didn't even know what the symptoms of diabetes were. So, and maybe some of you who don't have, you know, type two diabetes in your family, you don't know someone, you don't have it yourself. You may say, I actually don't know what the symptoms are either. I knew something about amputations because a lot of my diabetic patients had amputations and that was pretty much it. So something about blood sugar, something about amputations. So all this diabetes awareness that we do, what are we becoming aware of, right? Like that it exists. I know that diabetes exists, but I don't know what it is. I don't know what it And that dysregulation after decades of that getting worse, it finally becomes type two diabetes. So all along, there were all these symptoms that no one is talking about. And I didn't know this. And if I had known it, I would have changed things a lot sooner. So the things that kind of stood out to me um, in my that I sort of looked back on and I was like, oh yeah, those are blood sugar issues. So number one, whenever I went to go get 
fasting blood work, I hated it because I used to wake up and I would need to eat because I hated how I felt. So I'd get shaky. I would um, feel like I was going to pass out. I'd feel a little dizzy. I'd get irritable. And I hated being hungry. So I used to have to take food with me everywhere, everywhere I went, I would have a granola bar in my purse. But then when I switched to paleo, it would be like a Laura bar, which is more like a fruit and nut bar, you know? So I just sort of transposed my habits. I used to eat before I went out to eat because I couldn't, I used to say, I can't tolerate being hungry because I hate how it feels, but that's because my hunger was not normal. My hunger was an actual blood sugar crash. And so when hunger is not supposed to feel like that, and we can talk about hunger later because it's a really good indicator of what your blood sugar is doing. But I, um, I also had those sweet cravings. So that's not having all your teeth being sweet. That's not a typical thing that we want. That's not normal. And it indicates that there's some blood sugar regulation, dysregulation going on. So I had all this and I didn't realize it until I had heard that podcast. And then I lowered my carbohydrates, um, do still on a real food diet. I incorporated some fasting and it was like miraculous that all my blood sugar issues really went away. I did also some nutritional therapy. I really worked on my digestion. I worked on lifestyle things. I worked on my sleep and my movement. So it's like a whole piece of the pie. We can't just look at the food and change that and expect everything to get better. But that is a huge piece of what we have to do. And then we also have to dial in those lifestyle factors and things reversed. And now I feel great. (laughs) So I was able to, um, Oh, the other thing that I forgot to mention is that I used to be a closet eater and binge eater. So it's something that I feel a lot of shame around and didn't really talk about with anyone. But when I used to, you know, go home after school, I wasn't allowed to have a lot of snacks and I would eat all the snacks and all the cookies. And if I would be babysitting, I would raid the, you know, their pantry. And because I wasn't allowed to have that stuff, um, which in one sense, I feel like the restriction helped keep me from overeating, but maybe the restriction sort of rebounded. I don't know, but it's, they're addictive foods, right? So the foods that I was eating were very addictive. And then even when I was doing paleo, I had a paleo potluck and everyone brought stuff over to my house. And there were so many paleo treats and so many leftovers that everyone left at my house. And I helped myself to all the paleo treats. I polished off a bag of dairy-free chocolate chips And the next day I got really violently sick and it just stands out to me that even when I was eating, you know, real food and real sweeteners and all these things, I was still having this uncontroll, like this uncontrollable hunger and urge to continue eating sugar. And once I was on a ketogenic diet where my blood sugar was stable it took time. It took several months. It took getting rid of sweeteners. It took getting rid of anything tasting sweet because that would trigger me. But I was able to finally stop craving sugar. And I felt like I was just a weak person that I was like, oh, this is just how I am. I'm going to have to battle this, but I call it my sugar dragon. And so my sugar dragon lives in my head. He's still there no matter what diet I eat. Um, and he is hibernating right now. So he's not driving my decisions, but sometimes I can eat certain foods or do certain things that will wake him up. And then he's driving my decisions. Can I have a little bit of this? Maybe just have one, have a little, maybe you, you worked out. So maybe you can have some, this mental battle that takes up so much space and energy. So I purposefully try to structure my life. So my sugar dragon stays asleep and isn't running my decisions. And that allows me the freedom of not having to have this mental battle of the willpower against my sugar dragon, who is like just trying to balance my physiology. And so, um, yeah, working on my blood sugar control has been the most profound change to help me get rid of my cravings, binge eating. I haven't done that since I haven't felt the need for it. It's just amazing. So for some people it's emotional, but a lot of people don't realize it's so physiological. So our blood sugar could be going down a little bit and boom, it's going to send us those signals. And we can talk about that too. The the early signs of 
the blood sugar dysregulation, but it's going to send us signals to try to get food, try to get fast energy because that's what we're missing. So I'll take a breath. <laughs> I'll let you jump in. <laughs> I should say thank you so much for sharing. There's so much that I could comment on, but I want to really dive further into the the blood sugar stabilization, insulin resistance, but your uh, story is so similar to mine. Um, and I know a lot of people are probably listening and resonating with it as well. Cause I tried paleo, but it was still doing those other sweeteners and then yeah. it was still being triggered. So, um, and I like that you just said, I just had to paleo harder. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it really wasn't until you focused. And I like this angle, you know, most people listening are, um, addicted to sugar and, or in recovery and let's, so let's really talk about blood sugar more. Um, like what that even means to have stabilized blood sugar. And like you're saying, some of the signs that you might not be stable, will you just kind of dive into that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So let's talk about first, let's zoom out and look at our body's energy sources. So the first one is glucose or sugar. And so our body likes to have a small amount of sugar in our blood at all times, too little or too much, and we'll die. So there's lots of mechanisms to regulate that. So we only have a real small amount. And honestly, it's just about a teaspoon that's flowing through our body at all times. So the, the sugar can be used as fuel and the other option of fuel is fats and ketones. So just to keep that in mind that these are both energy sources for our body. So all of us are born in ketosis. We're all born with this ability to burn both glucose and fat for fuel. So we can kind of switch on and off. So if we eat food, it has some sugar in it, some carbohydrates in it, we'll burn that off. And then if we haven't eaten for a while, we should be able to switch on fat burning and just burn some ketones and fats for fuel, some of our body fat, and then we eat again and we might have some glucose. And so we burn that. So it should be this nice, easy process where we can go back and forth. But for many of us, look at the foods that are marketed towards children. Um, you know, no parents in here are doing, we're all, they're all trying to do their best for their kids. You know, my mom will be like, I'm so guilty. I feel so bad. Like I did this all to you. And I'm like, no mom, you did the best you could. It, I mean, I grew up in the eighties and nineties where low fat was the thing you fed me low fat because you were doing what they told you to do. You were doing the best you could for me. And I appreciate that. And now my journey is helping others because we're all in the same boat, right? So now after years and years of under eating fats and overeating carbohydrates, what happens, and then also eating toxic vegetable oils. So things like canola, soybean, um, cottonseed, rapeseed, sunflower oil, safflower oil, rice bran, peanut, and, and corn oil. I think those are all of them. Um, those oils actually damage the insulin receptors so they can cause insulin resistance. But basically what happens is that all of the sugar, the carbohydrates, and these vegetable oils are all blocking fat burning because when we eat sugar, when we eat carbohydrates, the amount of sugar in the blood goes up. And remember the body likes to tightly control this. So the pancreas is going to release a hormone called insulin. Insulin's job is to get the sugar into the cells. So it could be used to, and turned into energy. If it's floating in the blood, it can't be used as energy. It has to go into the cell. It can't get in there by itself. So insulin has to unlock the cell, put the sugar in, and then the amount of sugar in the blood will go down because now it's in the cells of the body. So that's how insulin lowers blood sugar. It puts it away into the cells to be used for energy. That's an important concept. So when insulin levels are high in the blood, it's the body is in a storage mode. So it will say store fat, store this fat as fat, store this, store everything. So high insulin levels come from overeating carbohydrates, especially refined carbohydrates, things with flour and sugar. Um, and so these high levels of insulin over time are going to cause us to store everything as, um, so we might find that we're gaining weight, but the other thing that happens is that now high levels of insulin in the blood almost immediately, well, well, 
one of the things they do is they also block the fat burning, like I talked about, because if we're in a storage mode, we can't be in a burning mode. We're storing fat. We can't be burning it. So then we don't have access to our own body fat as a source of energy. So what happens is with the insulin resistance, since we can't burn fat, it blocks the fat burning option. We're stuck with the one source of fuel, which is sugar. So it leaves us with that as our only option. And the body can only store so much sugar at a time. It can store about 1500, cal uh, 1500 calories of sugar in our liver as glycogen. And it could store some in the muscles and we have a little bit in the blood. But once that all runs out, we will... Um, our body will kind of turn on what I call like the check engine light or like the gas light, like, oh, the tank is almost empty. You know, you need to go refuel. So our body will start sending us signals when we can't efficiently burn body fat for fuel. And this is one of the first signs that we have blood sugar dysregulation. And so these symptoms are simple things, things that we experience all the time that we don't think twice about things like having a headache, um, being a little bit anxious or irritable, having hunger plus irritability, AKA being hangry. That's not just like funny and topical <laughs> and trendy. It means you have blood sugar issues <laughs> and then we might, um, get carb cravings. So we might think like, Oh, I, or like, I just need coffee. So you might get low energy because your body literally has low energy. And then there's a lot of symptoms in the brain because the brain uses the most energy. And so since the brain is sensing this energy crisis about to happen, like, Hey, we're about to run out of fuel we'll get brain fog, we'll get moodiness, or we'll get like the irritability, depression, anxiety, we'll have difficulty concentrating. And some people might even get nausea, they might get sweats, they might get shaky, dizzy. Um, so all of these symptoms are some of the first signs of blood sugar dysregulation, and they usually come when we're hungry. So this is when I talk about how hunger can be like a report card for your blood sugar we say that hunger should never feel very urgent. You shouldn't feel like I need to eat something right now. I'm going to die. Right. We can all probably bring to mind someone who gets that hangriness, you know? And so that is someone who it's like, Oh, you don't want to be around them when they're hungry. That's not normal hunger. That's not optimal hunger. Hunger can be put off. Hunger can be delayed. I used to think that people who were like, oh my gosh, I think I forgot to eat lunch. I'm like, you're showing off or you're lying because there is no way that is possible. And after I fixed my blood sugar, I actually have done that several times because I don't feel hunger the same way. It's like, what time is it? Oh, it's 1.30. Like, yeah, I could eat, you know, but I haven't eaten lunch. I, I ate dinner. I mean, I ate breakfast at like nine o'clock. It's 1.30 now. So in the past, I would have had to have eaten several hours ago, but now I have a podcast. I was just doing another one. It's something that can be put off. And that is normal hunger because my body can switch in and out of this mode of fat burning, sugar burning. It's okay. So what we call that is metabolic flexibility. So we want our metabolisms to be flexible. And that means it can use different things to fuel itself. So after these blood sugar issues start to show up, they um, usually what happens is that people don't think that there's anything wrong with that um, because we're not taught this. So we don't know. And then what ends up happening is that it is going to get worse and worse because these symptoms are driving us to eat the wrong foods that are only exacerbating the issues. So they're a temporary fix, but they're actually worsening the disease process. So when, um, one thing actually, I just want to go back and mention is that the insulin resistance, which I didn't talk about. So when insulin goes up in the blood, we almost automatically start developing resistance to it. We can develop, so there's insulin receptors on every single cell. And it's basically like the insulin's knocking and the cells like, you were just here, man. Like, um, no, no, no occupancy, you know? So it's just the same as if we're listening to like we walk into a concert and it's so loud at first, but by the end, you're kind of up by the speaker. That's resistance. Our ears got used to it. It's about that, like getting used to it. And then the signal is not so strong anymore. And so when we have a lot of this insulin in our blood, now if the insulin can't get into the receptor to open up the cell, to put the sugar in, what happens? 
the sugar is now in the blood, the high levels of sugar in the blood, they can't get into the cells. So now the cells have no energy. You feel like you're starving, but there's energy everywhere you in your blood. You just can't access it. So now you have high blood sugar, no energy. And what happens? You're hungry. You're tired. So what are you going to do? You're going to eat more. And of course, you're going to eat foods that have a lot of energy in them. They're going to be things like you want sugar, you want a soda, you want a coffee, you want a bagel, you want some, I would say some fruit, but most people are grabbing like just quick food, quick, uh, you know, packaged foods, a bag of chips, something like that. And so we tend to go towards these high energy, quick energy foods that are worsening the disease process. So then as it progresses, we start to see the symptoms of like all these blood sugar symptoms start to affect every area of the body because blood sugar uh, and sugar in general affects every single cell, organ, tissue, blood vessel, nerve, physiological process in the body. So now all of these blood sugar symptoms are, they feel random, they feel disconnected. So you can say, okay, how does sugar, high sugar and insulin affect your brain? Well, Alzheimer's is being called type three diabetes. So that's really important. We can get a lot of, like I said, all those mood issues, but now they might be like, I'm diagnosed with clinical anxiety because I have anxiety all the time because my blood sugar is so unstable. Could be clinical depression, could be memory loss, like a really intense brain fog. So everything starts to worsen, intensify, become more persistent. Um, and then you get more symptoms. Of course, we know that sugar affects our teeth and our gums and our oral health. Um, diabetes is the leading cause of blindness, um, skin issues. Wouldn't you know that my acne was caused by high insulin levels and blood sugar spikes. So now I don't have acne anymore, which is amazing <laughs> when you've had acne your whole life and people compliment your skin. It's like unreal. <laughs> it's the best compliment ever. And then our heart diabetes le leading cause of heart disease and, um, blood, blood vessel issues because it thickens the insulin is a growth hormone. So it's thickening the walls of all the vessels. This is going to affect all the organs that have tiny, tiny blood vessels, like our eyes and our kidneys, kidneys leading cause of kidney disease is in diabetic patients. Um, insulin resistance, a huge sign of that is having cardiovascular issues like high blood pressure, things like that. Um, and then in our gut, we know that sugar can cause an overgrowth of candida and imbalance the gut bacteria. It also depletes minerals from our body. So that's going to affect all different areas. It affects our liver, gives us fatty liver. It affects our pancreas because of all the insulin needing to be put out there. It affects our reproductive organs. So of course we have PCOS, which is the leading cause of infertility in women, high blood sugar levels in men can also impact their fertility as well and does impact their fertility as well. So you pick an organ and blood sugar and insulin is going to have an effect. So that's why the symptoms of blood sugar issues are so broad because it's literally anything in your body. So that's when, you know, it's in these later stages. So I hope that helps. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Thank you. I, I love the way that you explained that really, really well. Um, again, like I said, I hear this a lot, but I love the way that you said it. Um, I think it's going to resonate with a lot of people. And yeah, when you were checking off the, like the, the list, I'm like, yep, I had that. I had that before I changed my diet and the lifestyle changes, which are also very important. Um, like you said, mentioned foods, just the beginning of it. But yeah, I used to be one of those people that had all of those things. And, and still what's frustrating is, you know, people will um, seek help for that from the doctor or from a medical professional. And a lot of times they're just put on, even for PCOS, like I was offered metformin or go back on the pill. It's like they want to just, they don't even look at the nutritional piece of it and all the other things they just want to give you know a, a medicine that's just gonna be a band-aid you know to the symptom not get to the root cause which is the blood sugar imbalance so um for people listening that are like yes this sounds like me or i know somebody like this 
how do you suggest getting started as far as starting to get that blood sugar stabilized? And again, I hope people really listening are realizing the impact that has on every single organ of your body, like you're saying, you know, literally from your eyes to your, well, your brain, your eyes to your feet, where like you said, you know, a lot of people end up having to have their um, feet amputated with diabetes. So how do people start making some changes and getting their, you know, get this kind of stabilized for them? Yeah. So that's a great question. And the good news is that no matter where you fall on this blood sugar spectrum, you can always improve. And so even if you have type two diabetes, there are people out there reversing their type two diabetes, getting off insulin that they were on for decades. This is very possible. Um, so I just want you to believe and know and believe that this is a possibility for you, no matter where you are. Of course, the earlier we catch it, the easier it is to dial in and, and improve. So one of the things that we need to talk about before we talk about how is like, what the heck is stabilized blood sugar anyway? So what does that really mean? So like I said, our blood sugar need likes to stay in this happy, tight range. And so a lot of people I'm going to talk. Um, so I'm from the US. I'm going to talk in milligrams per deciliter when we do blood sugar. If you're outside of the country and you use you use millimoles, all you need to do is time uh, divide the number by 18. So just get your calculator out. I'm so sorry, all you international people. This is how we are in the US. We use stupid units of measure for everything. I'm so sorry. I didn't decide this. <laughs> Don't kill the messenger. So in typical medicine, they will tell you if your blood sugar is under hundred, you're fine. If it starts to tick up like to, let's say like 99, what does the doctor tell you? We will watch it. Okay. So, um, after we test the with the blood sugar. Okay. So under hundred, the doctor is going to say it's fine. hundred to 125. They're going to say you probably have pre-diabetes and that they're going to tell you, watch your diet and exercise more. And then once it gets over 126 fasting, typically they're going to say, now I can give you metformin. Now I can give you diabetes drugs. Cool. Now I can help you. Um, and so those are not the ranges that I use. So I use in my blood sugar when it got tested, by the way, was 60 or 63 when I had um, PCOS. And that was because I was hypoglycemic, which is another, it's one of the stages in this blood sugar spectrum. Not everyone passes through hypoglycemia. Some people really experience terrible hypoglycemia or reactive hypoglycemia, which is very, very debilitating. Um, but it, it's something that I experienced. And so in general, I say the optimal range is approximately 70 to 85. And that would be with no symptoms of hypoglycemia. So if we had symptoms of hypoglycemia, that number wouldn't feel good for us. You can have, this is just a side note for anyone who has been gaslighted by their doctor, you can feel symptoms of hypoglycemia at any blood sugar number. So you can have blood sugar at 120 and you could be feeling hypoglycemic and shaky and all those things that I told you, irritable, you need to eat, headache. Those symptoms are can be signs um, that you can experience there. You don't have to be at like 50 or 60 to experience that. Um, just wanted to let you know, but that's telling you that the insulin resistance has progressed so far that you can't even stand to be that low because your body thinks that there's an energy crisis at those high levels. So 70 to 85 is a good fasting range. And then generally there's, there's not really any exact specific number for every single person. And that's where it gets a little complicated. We don't ever really want our blood sugar to go over 140 because that will automatically become inflammatory to the body. So we definitely want to keep it under 140. But if we have a range from 70 to 140, that's a very big range. And personally, with myself, with many clients, many people I speak to, we don't feel as good as optimal with that big of a range. And so what tends to happen is most people feel best at around from the 70 with people with healthy uh, blood sugar levels, they feel best usually between the 70 
and like 110, 120 range. So even if you have a continuous glucose monitor, they set that high range to 140. I recommend to lower it to either 110 or 120, depending on what your preference is. So keeping the blood sugar between the 70, if you feel good at that range, to the like 110-ish, that is what I would call optimal blood sugar stability. And so we call this, this is a glycemic variability. We don't want the blood sugar to be going up too high or going down too low because we feel good in that happy range. So it's all about keeping it stable in this happy range. And um, the one of the ways that we do that is prioritizing fat. So remember, that's our other fuel source. So if we're going to be lowering carbohydrates and we don't raise fats, what we've done is we've lowered both of our energy sources. So a lot of people will say, oh, I'm just going to have some like protein and vegetables and they have protein and vegetables. So they have like chicken breast and broccoli and they're starving and they have sugar cravings. And then they go off the rails and they binge on sugar and they think that they're a failure. No, you're not. You just don't have energy and your body needs energy. So what happens is that when we lower the carbs, if we start increasing healthy fats, our body can have a new fuel source. It takes time to adjust to this. You're not going to be like, oh, this is perfect. You'll probably feel tired at the beginning, but just keep eating lots of good, healthy fats. So these look like fats from healthy animals. So we want to get the fattiest cuts of high quality meat we can afford. So like grass-fed steaks and beef, we want to get um, pasture-raised pork, um, organic dark meat, uh, chicken and turkey. We want to always choose like skin on, bone in, um, highest fat content we can get from our good quality protein sources, um, pasture-raised eggs with a really deep, rich, um, dark yolk, because that has the highest nutrient content. We want to eat the yolks, never throw out a yolk again. Um, some grass-fed butter or ghee, um, fruit fats, which are olives and olive oil, avocado and avocado oil and coconuts and coconut oil. Um, those are great places to start some nuts and seeds, but I find that a lot of my people with sugar addictions can binge on nuts and seeds, myself included. So um, just know yourself. And if that's a trigger food for you, keep it out of the house, but those could be a good option as well. Um, so we want to think about the meats, the eggs, uh, also fatty fish and like salmon, sardines, mackerel, and um, even salmon roe, which are like salmon eggs, these are going to be your main focus foods. These foods are going to be really helping you to stabilize your blood sugar. And of course, at every meal, we're going to put protein. This is so, so important. It's going to help you feel full. But I think that a lot of people in the blood sugar world focus too much on protein and not enough on fat. So I like to emphasize the fat. Fat is your friend when it comes to blood sugar. So we have lots of fat. We have lots of protein at our meals. We can do veggies. They make a great vessel for fat and we could put the fats on top of them, like drizzle them with olive oil or put some grass-fed butter on there or something. We also want to, if you're eating carbohydrates, always real food carbohydrates. So carbs in their whole natural forms. So like a whole apple compared to apple juice or like dried apples, though that has been processed rice over a rice cake, which is virtually like powdered sugar and just does like spikes your blood sugar so, so fast. Um, so the whole food carbohydrates, and then if you're eating those whole food carbohydrates, you always want to have them last. So you want to have them at a meal. We don't want naked carbs. Naked carbs will spike the blood sugar really fast. That will take it out of that range. So how do we keep it in range while still eating carbohydrates is First off, we have to look at the amount. We can't have like two cups of rice at a meal. That's going to spike us no matter what. But if we do a half a cup of rice, that might be better. Everyone's going to have a different threshold or tolerance. Remember, insulin resistance is a state of carbohydrate intolerance. That's really important to remember because you might not be able to tolerate carbohydrates for some time. So you want to work your way down and then stay low for a little while, heal, and then you can work your way up again. So um, then we want to have no naked carbs. We want to have the carbs at the end of a meal. So we want to eat our vegetables first. We want to eat our proteins and fats. And then finally we eat the 
the carbohydrates last because this actually has a notable effect on our blood sugar. It reduces how fast the blood sugar comes out. So we don't get a big spike in general. We don't want the blood sugar to spike 30 points or more at a meal. So you can measure this on a finger prick um, meter, or you can measure it on a continuous glucose meter. I highly recommend everyone get a glucose meter, even if it's just the finger prick one, because this gives you invaluable information about your health and how things are affecting you and where you're jumping in. Cause I've done the the glucose continue. And I actually have another one I need to do, and I'm going to do it again because it's been about Mm -hmm. two years and I want to experiment again, but it's so important because what you're saying is it's so individualized. So we are, there is a range for everybody. Um, And so when you're saying it shouldn't spike more than 30, um, after a meal, how long is that? How long should people that do test this on a glucose monitor? Um, how long are you saying that like an hour after a meal or. So generally I recommend to test, um, if you have the finger prick meter, what I recommend to do is test right before you eat the meal. And then every 20 to 30 minutes for the next two hours, unless the glucose hasn't come down, in which case you might want to continue testing because the point of doing it so often is to what I call capture the curve. Because if I just test one time, two hours later to see if my blood sugar returns to the baseline, what could have happened is my blood sugar could have spiked 90 points and then plummeted. And I caught it on the way down and it was exactly at the, let's say at 80 where I started And it could have gone way up here, way down here. That's not telling me any information. So you need to test a few times. And I don't recommend doing this for every meal, every day. This is a, okay, it's a Saturday. I'm not doing anything. I'm going to test my lunch today. I'm going to write it down and keep track of this. So this is important information. You do it when you can and just keep getting information on yourself because no doctor has your answer. I don't have your answers. You need to do this work for yourself and really tune into your body. That's the most important part of this is because you're the one who can identify these symptoms. And then another time to test is if you're feeling like, you know what, I have like a weird headache and I feel kind of like, I'm like, I'm craving, um, you know, a bag of chips, like test your blood sugar, see what it's at. You know, you might be like, oh, my blood sugar is fine. It's like a hundred. It's normal. Maybe a hundred for you is starting to dip into those those low feelings. So start keeping track, know your numbers. It's so, so important. Mm, Love that. Thank you so much. And what about the continuous glucose monitor? Just keep testing so you can get that idea of the curve. And again, it's going to look a little bit different for, for everybody. Um, and I love the no naked carbs, you know, so when I did this experiment about two years ago, the only time my blood sugar really spiked, maybe about 30 was I had an apple by itself. Um, and then the next day I had it with some, I'm someone that can eat nuts without overdoing it. And I just cut, had some nuts with it totally fine. Didn't. So it was very interesting information and that could look very same exact experiment could look very different if you did that. So yeah, I actually have done, um, a green apple by itself. And when my blood sugar was starting to come down, I was, because I haven't eaten like that. I haven't eaten like a naked carb in a long time. I was starving. I'm like, I hate this experiment. It's so terrible. (laughs) I just want to eat something. I was starving. I was having sugar cravings. And then I, if I eat, um, with peanut butter, I still do get a spike. It's probably about like eh, 20, 20 points, but I still do have some sort of a spike. So I'm not the best at carbohydrate tolerance. And so I need to probably have something like if I had like two eggs and then an apple with peanut butter, then I would do a little bit better. But even sometimes having half of the apple could be the amp could be the solution to that. So it all can depend a lot of times on quantity. Another um, really good hack for um, helping to lower these glucose spikes is either working out or going for walks after your meals. So one great idea is just like every day after dinner, we go for a walk or at lunch. If you're able to, if you're working instead of that afternoon coffee, 
having an afternoon walk instead where you're using up the glucose levels. Like, I mean, the glucose that was just from your meal, it can help to sort of flatten that curve. The one caveat I will say is that this is not going to erase some of the damage. If we have refined sugar, if there's chemicals, if there's vegetable oils, if there's preservatives and additives, it doesn't erase what you're doing, but it does help to lower the blood sugar because it uses it up. Um, the other thing is that I had, for example, I had banana ice cream. So I just blended some frozen bananas and put some like hundred percent dark chocolate on the top of it. And I took a 10 minute walk after that. And what happened was my blood sugar started going up during the walk. It kind of flattened out. And then afterwards it kept going up. So that one 10 minute walk wasn't enough for how many carbohydrates I had. So that's the other thing is that if it's just a small amount of carbs, maybe you only need a 10 minute walk. But if you ate something like an entire, like if you had like a, a big smoothie, like a 25 ounce smoothie or something like that, or a big acai bowl or a huge bag of chips or a giant piece of cake, it's going to you're going to need a lot more than just 10 minutes of walking most likely in order to completely get rid of that curve. If that's your goal. Oh, so much good little nuggets of information <laughs> in there. Just yeah. again, putting the, the fat, making sure adding increasing fat. I mean, I think that's so something that people need to prioritize and think about and then eating the carbs at the end of the meal. I love that. And then just looking mm -hmm. at the quantity, it might mm -hmm. be, oh, actually I can eat some rice. I was just eating too much. Let me cut down to that half a cup and really, or mm -hmm. half an apple. So yep. really playing around. Um, Cause again, we're all individuals. It's going to look different for all of us kind of playing around with these things. I think it's kind of fun once you're got, you know, once your mm -hmm. blood sugar has stabilized a little bit, you can start experimenting. And that's why I got the continuous glucose monitor, which I had to pay for out of pocket, but I find it was just such good data. Um, so, so I really challenge to everyone and, and maybe talk to your doctor and see if your insurance will cover a portion of it, but it, that's really great way to get immediate feedback on what's working within your own body individually. Um, we're getting kind of towards the end, but I wanted to make sure, is there anything else around, you know, we were just talking about ways and we were kind of just starting with the food. Is there anything else there that we missed that you wanted to talk about? Sure. Yeah. Um, one of the best strategies to set yourself up for the day is also to think about having a breakfast that doesn't spike your blood sugar. So one of the things I want to, um, can have you consider doing is breaking up with the concept of breakfast because breakfast in most of our minds might look like cereal and pancakes and oatmeal and toast and smoothies and fruit. And all of those things will spike your blood sugar. So yes, I said oatmeal. Yes, oatmeal is included. Break up with oatmeal, get it out. So if we take out all those things, what's left for breakfast? Eggs and bacon and sausage? Like eggs every single day. Eggs are great. Eggs are phenomenal. But if we eat them every single day, chances are you're going to get sick of them. And then the other chance is that you will probably develop a sensitivity to them because all of us, our guts are messed up and eggs are highly allergenic. So I really recommend not having eggs every single day, even though they are a very healthy food. And then that leaves us with processed breakfast meat. Not ideal, not fine. Maybe once in a while, not the best thing. I wouldn't have it every single day. So what does that leave us for breakfast? What we need to do is if we break up with the concept of breakfast, we just have what's left is food. So what do, what do I eat for breakfast? steak, a, a burger with no bun, some salmon, some chicken. I eat food for breakfast. So anything I would eat for a lunch or a dinner, I might have that for breakfast too. This is an advanced concept. Maybe, you know, it takes a while to get used to, you know, my mom would be like, what are you cooking at this hour in the morning? That smells gross right now. Like it takes some time and adjusting. So do your best, but having real food for breakfast and just having dinner three times a day is an amazing, amazing tip. And then finally, Breaking up with snacking is going to do wonders for your blood sugar. If you have reactive hypoglycemia, um, you won't be able to do this yet, but many people can just even start out with just taking a snack. Let's say you brought um, lunch to work and a snack. 
just have your snack right after lunch. So remember, we're taking the carbs, having them last instead of having it as a naked carb in the afternoon, which is just going to spike you and crash you. So it's going to have less of an impact. And then just thinking of bigger meals. So if you can't snack, what do you have to do? You have to make bigger, more balanced meals with more fats and more proteins that will keep you full to the next meal. So it will have you planning better and, um, will do wonders for your appetite and your blood sugar and your waistline. So really great tips. <laughs> Love all these great hacks, great tips. I'm so sorry. We're out of time because yeah. and maybe we can do a schedule, a, a follow-up episode. Cause we didn't even really get into the lifestyle part, which I know is mm-hmm. really, really important. Um, I talk about that a lot too. So that might be a whole other episode, but thank sure. you so much. I think you've explained, um, for listeners so well, um, what insulin resistance is. I know I just love it. That, uh, visual now of a, you know, someone knocking on the cell and it's like, sorry, you were just here. You can't come back. I mean, just really a good visual there. What blood sugar looks like, um, when it's not stabilized, some of those stim- symptoms, and then just giving us all really good information on how to get that stabilized. So thank you so, so much. If people want to reach out to you, how it's the best way. Cause I know you teach, um, you do like blood sugar mastery programs. So how do people who want to dig in even more, how do they contact you? Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram or Facebook at Danielle Hamilton health. And I'm most active on Instagram. Feel free to message me. And I also have a podcast called unlock the sugar shackles. And my signature group coaching course is called Blood Sugar Mastery. The next round of that will be in January, 2022. And then I do have a reactive hypoglycemia masterclass coming up on November 20th. It's going to be recorded if you can't make it live. Um, And we didn't have time to talk about those blood sugar crashes. So if you're like, I'm just experiencing blood sugar crashes. I can't stop snacking. You know, my dietitian or doctor has told me to keep eating more carbs more often. If you find yourself in that camp, (laughs) then um, definitely check out the masterclass because that will really, really help. But um, yeah, the blood sugar program is an eight week program and it dives into all sorts of stuff, including the diet, lifestyle, digestion, how to read food labels, um, how to test your blood sugar how to get it to ketosis, when to come out of ketosis, all these awesome things. So, and it's a great community, great community feel. There's cooking classes and workshops and all sorts of stuff. So, yeah. Wow. That sounds so amazing. Thank you so much. And I'll be sure to link all this information too, so people can find you. Um, Is there any last words that you'd like to leave with us? Any last takeaway that either we didn't get to, or you just wanted to say again? (laughs) Um, Fat is your friend, the good kinds of fats and avoid those vegetable oils, like the plague, read your ingredients because they're in everything and they're in restaurants cook with them every single one basically so every time you go out to eat you get those vegetable oils that directly cause insulin resistance so limiting going out to eat cooking your food from home reading ingredients this is going to be the best way to optimize your health and to feel better thank you so much it was wonderful talking with you you too Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. And remember, life is so much sweeter without sugar.